Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that uh, we're able to worship together like this. Uh, I want to give a quick preview to the series that's coming up uh, next week. It's a brand new series we're kicking off called In My Feelings and What to Do About It. Uh, see, the idea of this series is whatever emotion that you have, whether it's, it's anger or it's bitterness or it's envy, it's, it's like there's a warning light that's going off inside of our hearts that says like something is wrong. It's like God's way of saying something may need to change. And we're going to explore some of that kicking off again in my feelings and what to do about it next week, a brand new series. But today is the last installment, part five of five of our series called Splinters and Stones. It's uh, very simply a series about words, the power, the sheer destructive or constructive power that words have. And so this morning, we're going to talk in a very, very personal way about those words that we say to ourselves. And so I just want to lead off with this question that says, are you as gracious to yourself as you are to some other people around you? Because I know a lot of you, like me, I'll give other people the benefit of the doubt. I'll, I'll look at other people and say, they're so strong, they're so successful, they're so great, they have everything all together, but I know my own story. I see their highlights on social media. I see my, my behind the scenes. And so I don't let myself off the hook. I'm gracious to those other people in my life even more so than I am for myself. And so this morning, what we want to do is take a look at this and say, listen, what are some of those voices that we're saying to ourselves, the script that's going on? And also, where do those voices come from? You see, a lot of us, the voices that we have was maybe a coach, maybe a mentor, somebody in our life that took us to the side one point and said, hey, listen, I don't think this sport is for you. Or I don't think this industry is for you. I don't think like this department is for you. I think, I think maybe it's time to change majors because this one doesn't seem to be clicking with you. I don't think you can do it this way. I don't think you can be successful here. So it's time to move on. And so like that script plays in the back of your head that says, I, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I can do this. Or for some of you, the voice is even so much more powerful because it was actually the voice of a parent, a mom or a dad who had that recurring tone, and you could just remember this, that, that exact biting way that they would say it. Whenever you would screw up, whenever you'd fall short, whenever you'd fail at something, is the comment and the tone that would come. Why can't you just do anything right? And that voice is the script that plays in the back of your head. And so I want to share with you the statistic that I heard a little while ago. I heard that, that the voice in our head, the, uh, we have something like 60,000 individual thoughts every single day. And the researchers said that at almost 80% of those thoughts are negative. And if that's the voices that are inside of our head, that constant drip of negativity, the challenge on each one of us is to ask, how is that shaping and forming the patterns in our lives, in our hearts? How is that drawing a wedge between us and what God might be doing, or at least seeking to do in our life, in your life? And so this is an origin story. We want to go to a place, where do those voices come from? And so I'd encourage you, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. It's the very, very beginning of the Bible. Like I said before, it's an origin story. We're seeing where does that voice come from? Before we get into the story, though, I want to share with you one other story. A story that actually had happened. It's a real story, a true story. But of course, the names have changed around. This is a story of a, of a young woman we're going to call Alice. Alice is in her mid to late 20s, although it's, it's hard to tell. Alice and her dad walk in to a pastor's office. And they, they, they walk into the office as a, uh, 
mostly as a last resort rather than a first response. And immediately the pastor, he can see something's wrong here. It's like she does not have an ounce left to lose on her body before tragedy is about to strike. Her eyes are, 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 are sunken and just empty looking. And they start off, what brings you in here? Why today? Well, the, the presenting issue is, uh, is Alice. She lost her job maybe three days ago, lost another job maybe three years ago. But her story starts long before that. Her dad starts to unpack it, starts to explain a little bit that she was such a happy kid. She loved her mom, loved her dad, and loved Jesus. And, and still does. It's just that in, uh, in early adolescence, uh, she was having uh, just this severe experience, a crippling pain uh, brought on by PMS. And going to the doctor, it was prescribed for the first time, prescription painkillers. And the experience of the painkillers turned into a dependency on painkillers, blossomed into an addiction of painkillers. And it just, it robbed her life. Is that the painkillers, of course, that took her job from her a little while ago, previous to the visit, but they also came to find out that she was arrested some time ago, the first time, for possession of a controlled substance. And now it's taking over her life, and she doesn't have much longer. And so the, the pastor asked her, hey, can you tell me about yourself? And so Alice starts to explain, and the words that she uses, uh, good for nothing, no good, trouble, worthless. Where does a voice like that come from? Genesis chapter 3, we find out in an origin story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, these are good stories. These are creation stories. A power of words. God spoke into the darkness, spoke into the nothing, and created light and created everything. And every time he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Except for the sixth day, the sixth time, he looked at his crowning achievement of all creation, mankind, human beings. And he looked on the human beings that he made and said, it's not good. It's very good. The Lord God looked on all this. And I just, I want to invite you to keep that phrase, the Lord God. Don't let that go off too far. The Lord God made all of these things. Um, but inside of the garden, the Lord God had observed this serpent that was more crafty. Crafty is a word that you think of that's, uh, that's inherently negative or, or bad sounding. It's not. Proverbs, I think, is 14, 15 said, the simple don't count their steps, but the, and the word there, crafty, or sometimes it's translated differently, but it's the same root word, uh, the, prudent, uh, the prudent look ahead. It's a word that could go either way depending on the, the context, depending on the, the person who is prudent or, or maybe crafty, in this case, the serpent. Now, some of you who know the story of this one, you're like, oh, the serpent in the story. I know the, the serpent. Now, the serpent goes by another name. The serpent goes by you know, the devil. The serpent goes by evil, the personification of that. In this case, the, the serpent goes by the name, and it's given to us. The first time a name is assigned to the serpent, the name that's assigned to the serpent in the book of Job, chapter 1, is the name Satan. 
Only it's not like a name, like we have names, like a capital letter, starting it off a capital S, like it's a, it's a proper name. It's not that. You see, the name, when it's assigned to the serpent, Satan, it, they didn't use capital letters, lowercase letters. They used articles. They used A. They used the beginning of the word. And so in a very real sense, what we have is the serpent. His name that's assigned to him in the book of Job chapter 1 is the name, the, the accuser. Because that's what he does. That's what the serpent does. That's the power that he has, the power not to control, the power to accuse. Um, Neil T. Anderson, he has this, uh, this little book um, uh, uh, about uh, the power that bondage has. And there's this, there's this great illustration to how this works, the power that the accuser has in our lives. We'd be wise to learn from it. He said, when you accept Jesus and when you accept the promises that God has for you in your life, and you start off on this road, down this path. And at the end of the path, you can see in your life, a step at a time at the end of the path is Jesus himself calling you near. Except for on the way to that path, it's lined with like booths. And I think of it like, like, like carnival barkers shouting at me, shouting at you, getting you to, to try to come in. Step right up, folks. Three rings for a dollar. Whatever it takes to like get you into their booths. Only this time it's the accuser. This time it's the tempter. This time it's the person. Hey, come in here. Try this. Do this. Visit this place. Come on over here. It's not so bad. Just give it a shot. Just this once. Whatever it takes to have you just step off the path towards Jesus into the booth, even just for a moment, just temporarily so. Or on the other side, another, another barker calling at you and saying, hey, listen, you don't, need to, you don't need to show up this week. You don't need to dial in church online. You don't need to read the Bible today. You don't, need to, you don't need to pray all that fervently. I mean, it's a global pandemic after all. Jesus will understand. Just take this week off, would you? And as soon as you step off the path, as soon as you go into the tent, the accusations start flying. How could you? See, you're not a child of God. Look how easily you stepped off the path. And it just, it intensifies that much more. That's the power. It's the power that the serpent has. Not power of control, but power of accusation. Come on over here and then look what you did. Who do you think you are? Whose do you think you really are? Listen to what he does, though. We have to, church, we have to understand, like, the, the methods that are used in order to see the victory that Jesus has won. This is the methods. Uh, continuing on in, in verse one, um, where he, this is the serpent now, he said to the woman, listen, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I've preached on this one a bunch of times. And every time I get to this line, I highlight for myself, and it's noted up in my Bible, this word really, did God really say? And there's just so much wisdom here about like, how, how there's like a kernel of truth to every lie, a good lie. In case you're wondering, the, the trick of lying, well, is having a kernel of truth to it. Kids, pay no attention to that. Don't worry about it. That's how lies work. They, the good lies, they have a little kernel of truth behind it. And that's what the accuser does in the story. The serpent does in the story. There's like this kernel, did God really? It plants a seed of doubt to it. I'm not sure. Did he? But the part that I haven't preached on before and the part that I want to draw your attention to because it highlights just so powerfully the story of God is the word God. Remember, I asked you to hang on to that phrase a little earlier from verse 1. Um, 
the animals that the Lord God had made just previous to it. And now we see, did God really say? The word God that's used there, the Hebrew word, it's the word Elohim. It's the generic God. It's like lowercase God. The, the gods and goddesses, I don't know, of ancient Egypt, right? From, from like a long time ago. Those gods. Not anybody in particular, just kind of the idea of God. That's who he's talking about. And the serpent uses, for the first time in the story of God, the first time in the Bible, we see this like divide between the phrase, the Lord God made on day one, the Lord God made day two, three, four, the Lord God made, and just the word God. Previous to that, the Lord God, the word is Lord, and, and it's oftentimes in, in your Bibles, like it might be in all caps, and it's like the letters are squished down, but it's still capital letters, uh, Lord. It indicates the divine name of God. What it, indica- what it indicates is God saying, like, this is my name, like Dirk or Derek or Deborah or Donard. I don't know why they all start with D, but like you get the idea. I'm a preacher, like I can't help it, right? This is God saying, this is my, this is what I want you to call me. I want you to call me Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God made, the Lord God, the Lord God. It's who I am. And I'm going to give this to you because I want to be known. I want you not only to know me, but to be in relationship with me. And you see the tactics of the accuser, the the tactics of those voices in our head, it separates out Yahweh from Elohim. It separates out the person of God from the idea of God. What the accuser has just done, what the voice has just done first is to reduce God from being a person to just being a policy. Do this, don't do that. And listen, I got I to gotta get real with some of you because, like for some of you, you grew up with this idea. Or lately, maybe you've just drifted into this idea. And God for you has been a philosophy, has been a policy, has been an idea, but he hasn't been a person in your life. Not somebody to know and to get to know. Not somebody who is known and you're getting to know more. And what that does is this drift starts to happen because a God like that isn't really worth getting to know. He's just a policy, not a person. Do this, don't do that. And so sometimes what happens, maybe two ways this comes out, is that, is that what happens is that you believe that, well, if I pray this way, if I pray this long, or if I do these actions, I'll pull this lever and twist that knob, and then God will do for me whatever I want God to do with me, because that's how the policy works. That's how the idea works. And so if I, if I pray this way and I pull this knob, then I can get God to bless me and I can get a raise or promotion. This relationship thing is going to fall into place. My grades are going to improve. I mean, everything is going to like start to get better if I could only like do this sort of thing. And then and the pandemic gets worse or somebody I know gets sick. I don't get the raise. I get furloughed instead. And it's like, God, what happened? I prayed the prayer. I turned the knob. I pulled the lever just like I was supposed to do. But you didn't follow through. What's this policy good for anyway? And you're tempted to walk away. And you're tempted to walk away. Or another thing happens where you just get to know God, the idea of God, the Elohim of God, without the Yahweh of God, the name of God, the person of God. And God is just a set of rules. Do this, don't do that. And it's just plain boring. It's unengaging. 
Why would I want to follow? Why would I want to serve? Why would I want to devote my life to, to a set of principles to live by or not? Heaven at the end? I don't know. That's good for a little while. Let's see how long that stays engaging. Why would I give my life to something like that? And so you're tempted, again, to walk away. Listen to me. Listen. This is so, this is so important. Before you walk away, I want you to know that is not the God of the Bible that you're walking away from. That's a, that's a fiction. That's a made-up idea. That's a policy about God. That's not who God is. That's not the person of God. If that God like that is who you believe in, the Elohim without the Yahweh, attached to the beginning of it, listen to me, I'm telling you, that's not the God of Christianity because the God of Christianity as revealed here is based not on a policy, but on a person, and his name is Jesus. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the, the couple, Adam and Eve here, he's in the story. Unfortunately, she doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, verse 3, but God, she fell for it. It's the second time that Yahweh isn't used, just Elohim. It's the second time she fell for it. But God did say, and listen to, listen to her language, God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. What happened? She fell for it. The voice got to her. God, for her, is just a principle, a policy, a rule. God told me this simple thing. Don't do this. Do this instead. If I touch it, I'm going to get a slap on the wrist. And she's already starting to drift away. She's already starting to believe the voice that tells her that God is a policy, not a person. And he's not really worth knowing or trusting either. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Yeah, that's that kernel of truth to it. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In fact, you'll get a firsthand experience of both of those good and evil. Isn't that going to be incredible? Like my seven-year-old who climbs up on the couch, not on the front of the couch, not on the armrest of the couch. No, he climbs up on the back of the couch and lays out a very thin, worn blanket to jump, to, to, to spread out and jump onto, thinking like it's going to catch him. He jumps out of the thing, starts crying. I rush over. Buddy, what happened? I jumped off. Why'd you jump off? I want to see what happens. What happened? Well, it hurt. Yeah, Eve says it hurt. I wanted to be like God. I wanted to know this firsthand experience of what good and evil is. And I got firsthand experience now. And what happened? It hurts. And the, the pace of the story, there's like this conversation, the temptation that, that takes so long. So many words are devoted to like the setup of it because God is like, listen, this is the origin of it. This is how that voice just gets like, like nestled in the back of your head that just chirps at you all day long, incessantly, 80% of those 60,000 thoughts. This is where it comes from. The actual act is, is sped up tremendously. Look how, listen to how quick it is. Verse 6. When the woman, it's three-step process. When the woman saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Oh, and she also gave some to her husband, who was there with her. And he ate it. He was there the whole time, by the way. Don't just blame her. It's both of them. It's a three-step process. As she saw, she took, and she gave. It's as simple. It's as quick as that. And everything, the world would never be the same. Again, the voice is now almost permanently installed as a fixture of the creation that wouldn't be undone for thousands and thousands of years. The consequences, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> like the storyteller, the author here, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, ancient Near Eastern foliage, herbology, I don't know. Fig leaves were the largest leaves that they would have had available to them at the time. Fig leaves make a terrible covering. They're, they're brittle. They tear easily. You can tie them on maybe for a little while. It's not, it's not good for a covering. It's not going to... It's not going to permanently cover the new installment of the voice in their head called shame. It's not good enough. This is what happens. The next step in the story, you got to know this. It's so critical that shame compounds sin. Shame takes sin and makes it almost infinitely worse. Kid sits down on that, on that couch, brand new couch, with a bowl of cereal. He's not supposed to. Mom and dad told him, don't eat cereal, a bowl of cereal on the brand new couch. They're not up yet. He sits down with his bowl of cereal, sneaking one in. He spills it. He knocks it over. Just milk and Cheerios everywhere. He knows he's in trouble, or at least he's going to be in trouble. What does he do? Shame compounds sin. He takes an old pillow, a blanket. He hides it. He runs away. He crawls into bed, pulls the covers up over his head, over his eyes, pretending to be asleep, pretending he didn't just do it, pretending he didn't break the rules. He's running away. This is what we see in the story, church. They're running away from God for the first time in creation. They've stepped outside. They've broken the rules. Sin has entered in. But instead of running to God and saying, look, I spilled the milk. I know I wasn't supposed to, but quick, I need your help. Instead of running towards God and asking for help to fix what they broke, they run away. And the milk, what happens? It spoils, doesn't it? The milk, it starts to stink and fester. It becomes disgusting. It's infinitely worse because they ran away instead of running towards. That's how shame compounds sin. And you think it doesn't come with a cost. It hurts the cost. Is nothing short than somebody's life. Uh, Brendan Manning, he says it so well. When this happens, when we run away from God instead of to God, when we hide from God instead of presenting it and asking him, look, I broke this, please help me fix it. When that voice brings us away, Brendan Manning says, great deeds remain undone. You are walking down this corridor, and at the end, you can hear the voice of Christ calling you, drawing you in. And the voice 
and the head and others of the accusers lining the pathway, calling you to come in just this once, just try it. Those lies have to be confronted. Confront them. What lie maybe are you believing this week and need to replace that with the truth of God? Because when lies are not confronted, callings are not fulfilled. Just want to say it again. When lies are not confronted, callings are not fulfilled. It will take your life. It will hurt. It almost took Alice's life. She's sitting in the office that day. And the pastor looks over and says, just tell me about yourself. Describe yourself. I'm no good. Failure. Screw up. I'm worthless. And every time, every time she levels who she sees that she is, he counters and says, no, no, no. First John chapter 3, you are a child of God. My future is this. I might not even make it through the week. I'm done. I'm ready to give up. No, no, no. Ephesians chapter 1. You are his workmanship. You are his creation. Created for good purposes. He has something for you. And they just, and they go back and forth. You know, her life wasn't immediately 100 degrees different that day. But she took, it was enough for her to take one step towards her Savior, calling her in covering her shame more permanently than she could ever do for herself. I love the part about this story at the very end because it's just, it's heavy, it's dripping and saying it's not fixed yet, but more is coming. It's a down payment. Genesis 3, verse 21, how the story wraps up that the Lord God, again, we see God, even though we reject him, he's an idea, he's a policy. God says, no, I am a person and I'm demanding to be in relationship with you, whether you want it or not. The Lord God made Garments of skin for Adam and his wife, Eve, and clothed them. The Lord God made these garments of skin. He made them out of, out of an animal. He's saying, this is not enough. A fig leaf will not do it. But I have something more in mind. I have something better in mind. But it's going to, to cost something. At this stage in the Old Testament, what God is setting up is that sin has a price to it. And they're starting that with saying, it's the blood of an animal. It's going to cost something. And then God will step in later on and say, no, no. That too is not enough. I have to assign value to the thing that we lost. I have to assign value to Alice's life, to my life and to yours and to your eternity. And there's a funny thing about value. Value isn't what's written on the price tag. Value isn't the sign on the wall. The value of a thing is the price that it'll bring. And the price that God sets on Alice's life is nothing short than infinity, is nothing short than, than the, heart, the life of Jesus Christ himself stepping down from heaven and dying on the cross, rising again. Why? Because he loves Alice to death and back again, and he loves you that much as well. And God says, this is how much I care for you. This is who you are. This is whose you are. You have infinite value. You have infinite worth. I love you this much. I am going to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. That is the heart of the gospel. When we mess up, when we walk into one of those booths 
When we believe the lie of the chirping voice inside of our head, God says, listen, listen, this isn't about you doing this on your own, Alice or Dirk or anybody watching this. This is about me doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's the heart of the gospel. You need more than just a, a, a thin, flimsy cover-up. You need a once and for all atoning sacrifice, and his name is Jesus Christ. Who assigned you a value in him. It's everything. And right now, he's calling you forward. Take that next step down the corridor toward him. Ignore the voices. Confront the lies. Fulfill your calling. You are his. I want to encourage you this week that if you're listening to this right now and you're like ready to take that step, Drop us a line. Put something in the comment section below. Send us a private message. Send us an email at curiousandencounterchurch.org to say that I'm ready to take that first step toward my Savior. I'm ready to confront the lie and fulfill my calling. And so, God, we ask today that you make good on these promises to love us, to save us, to redeem us, to give us a hope in the future. God, every time that we're tempted to fight our own battles, remind us that you have done for us what we could not ever have done for ourselves. Give us this courage to confront those lies that we, that we say to ourselves so that we can step into the new creation that you have created us to be. God, I pray for honesty. I pray for moments of clarity Maybe later today, talking about this message, uh, talking and thinking and praying through what it means. God, I pray in this way for you to be glorified because you're the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, it's in your resurrected name that we pray all these things. Amen.